Thank you all for listening today. We have a great episode. Associate Professor of Neuroscience, Allison Coffin, is working on reducing hearing loss and, and possibly in the future even restoring lost hearing. Incredible stuff. She does many other things as well, but this is just uh, an example of why I love doing this podcast. I, I go on, like many of you, uh, like most of us these days, you you check in, you go, hey, I'll I'll take a peek at a screen. I'll I'll turn on the news or uh, scroll through my Twitter feed or whatever it might be, see what's going on in the world out there, <laughs> and then uh, and then it's horrific, um, mostly because the news and whatnot fetishizes violence and all of these graphic, hyper salient things that grab your attention and. And clickbait, yeah. It's but only, and that's only part of the problem. And uh, you know, triggering your negativity bias and all that good stuff that we get to hear about on the show. And it's just the news, all that. It'll turn anyone into a pessimist over time. But then I get to go around and I get to talk with uh, all these wonderful researchers who are out there doing what they can to improve the human condition. And uh, it just gives me hope when I get to have guests like today on a fantastic episode, fantastic research, and really rooting for her in this research to really take off. Any of you guys that want to see my stand-up comedy, I have, uh, I have at the end of August, I'm doing some shows in Florida. I have Sarasota, Florida. I have my schedule's been really up in the air lately because I have some exciting projects that I can't quite tell you about yet, but it looks like I'm going to be in Miami. It looks like I might potentially be doing some shows in um, Gainesville, Key West, some other areas of Florida, assuming I don't have to scrap all of those plans for some other things. Uh, but I'm I'm working on a bunch of cities around Florida for the end of August right now. So please go to shanemoss.com and check out my schedule. I would love for you to see the current act that I'm doing, uh, which is, I guess, a little bit about kind of sharing my uh, my search for meaning in life. I also just do some stuff that's silly for silly's sake as well. But, um, but a lot of my, my current act is uh, really... A little more meaningful to me. So I hope you get a chance to see it. I'm really happy with where it's at right now. And I've been getting tons of great feedback from people. I have some gigs lined up in Michigan in October. So I'm working on putting together more Midwest stuff around there. And just a whole bunch of other stuff in the works. So keep going to shamemoss.com, checking in. And you can join my mailing list. If you're worried about being inundated by emails, like, oh, I can't sign up for yet another email list that my inbox gets bombarded with, with information that I just don't need a monthly update from so-and-so. Well, you don't have to worry about me doing that. I believe I've sent out two... (laughs) Two emails on my email list in in the like seven to ten years or whatever that I've had it. So I only make um, pretty big announcements with it. Maybe in the future I'll do a little more with it. But I I can promise you, you're not going to have to worry about me inundating you with 
anything, mostly because I'm sort of lazy, um, but also because I don't like getting a bunch of spam emails as well. So check that out if you want. Uh, I would absolutely love to see you guys out there at a live show. It's always nice meeting listeners and uh, enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm at Washington State University, Vancouver, very close to where I now live, talking with Associate Professor of Neuroscience, Allison Coffin joins me. Allison, thank you so much. Thanks. Good to be here, Shane. Yeah, this is uh whew. We we've we've scheduled this on like five different occasions now or something. And, and then I always have some travel thing pop up and you've been so wonderful and accommodating. And uh and, and we're going to talk about your your uh, uh work, of course, as well. But one of the one of the big main reasons I'm excited to talk to you is is we uh, we have a very similar interest, which is science communication. How do you get this wonderful, important information, all of this great work that uh, that scientists are doing, and how do you get it out into the public? What's the name of? <laughs> I keep on. I already asked you this earlier, but what's uh, science talk? Right Good, there, you go. I was going to say there was going to be a quiz it. later. You got the quiz ah! question right. We're great. Yeah, well, my my audience is used to me uh, having a hard time remembering specific details. Concepts, I'm good at, but names of things and stuff, awful, terrible. So Science Talk, what is Science Talk? Science Talk is a nonprofit organization that a group of us started a few years ago, although we only became a nonprofit a few months back. The IRS is a little slow. And we're dedicated to helping scientists and science communication professionals connect with each other. We're really about helping scientists become better communicators. So how do we communicate not just what we do, but the importance of what we do and really the excitement about what we do and why it matters to all different audiences, other scientists, school kids, legislators, our next door neighbor. How do we just talk to people about why science is fun and interesting and important, which is one of the great things I like about your podcast is you bring scientists in to do just that. The other thing about the organization is we really want to be the community for science communicators throughout the U.S. and even internationally. There are a lot of different groups doing great things in science communication. There's GradSciCom, which does great work with graduate students, training them to be better communicators. There's the National Association of Science Writers. There's the National Association of Broader Impacts that does more science outreach. There are all these different groups And they talk within their group, but they don't really talk to each other or get a chance to. And we want to be the organization that brings all of those different groups together, primarily once a year for a short conference where everybody can network, learn from each other, exchange ideas, and just go away with new contacts and new excitement for communicating science in their own communities. Hmm. So how do you go about – I've had – Boy, I don't know, 180-some episodes or something like that now. Um, close to 200 different uh, researchers. And it's it's pretty – once in a while we have a podcast where it's someone outside of academia, but uh, pretty close to 200 now. And, and um, 
varying degrees of communication skills and styles, I will say. A lot of people think that um, this is, I mean, this is definitely, um, most comedians have just a comedy podcast and they get their comedy buddies on and then they have a grand old time talking about the the news or their favorite movies or whatever and uh and and you don't really have to you don't really have to think about coaching your your guest through how to uh you know how how to uh, kind of do this well because we're uh, comedians are constantly having to do things like this um but academics also have a lot of teaching experience and that sort of thing which i i do think it translates like well enough i i think um i mean there's definitely i have guests on the show that it might just be because it's their first time doing this or something like that or um or just their personalities a little i don't know drier or whatever it might be um but uh but i i find that uh that a lot of academics are pretty good at at communicating their work, but what what are some of the what are what are some of the main um, issues that you see people having? Is it is it just trying to motivate people to be more mindful of of communicating their ideas to the public and getting outside of their kind of academic bubble, or is it giving kind of practical speaking tips? Um, what what sort of tools are you trying to implement? I think you've hit on a couple of the big issues, so. I've listened to some of your podcasts and the guests that I've heard on your podcast have been very engaging and fun to listen to. And before I say too much, we haven't really finished this interview yet. So we'll see if I'm actually engaging and useful (laughs) or not. So far, you're killing it. All right. Thanks. You're you're a great motivator. (laughs) But I'll be honest, when I look at a lot of the old guard in science, so not necessarily my direct mentors, but more their generation, I see some scientists that are really good communicators And I see a lot who are, frankly, pretty lousy and don't care. Mm. First of all, just at conferences. In part, my own interest in science communication and in teaching other scientists how to communicate, I do a lot of workshops for students and things too, came out of going to conferences and being bored out of my mind when I knew it was really cool science being presented. And I would have wished they would have just handed me the paper and let me go to the bar early because I wasn't getting anything out of what they were trying to share because it was flip through busy slide after flip through busy slide and oh look something just happened and I don't know what it just was now it's time for the coffee break Mm. so part of it is I see that mostly in older scientists just not thinking intentionally about how to even communicate with each other and that giving a talk is very different than writing a scientific paper you can't put eight graphs up on a slide and expect people to understand all of what's going on you actually have to walk people through and when we're reading a paper, we can go back to things and reread if we don't understand it or look it up. If it's in the middle of a talk, it's gone, and mm-hmm. we don't know what happened to it. And so part of it is starting to coach some of the skills about how is giving a presentation, whether it's a formal science presentation or a science cafe style talk, how, how are those things different? Part of it is convincing, especially with science cafe and informal talks, convincing the older scientists that it matters. I hear from a lot of graduate students who want to come to one of my workshops or who want to come to a science talk conference who say, hey, do you have funding for graduate students to go? Because I can't even tell my professor, my mentor that I'm going to this, let alone get money from him or her to attend. So there's a bit of a culture shift from those that see science outreach and engagement as important 
And those that think scientists are supposed to be in the lab or in the field doing the great work, thinking all these great things, and that it's not really their job to communicate what it is beyond the 10 people that are 20 people that are going to read their paper. Mm -hmm. And so I just disagree with that mindset. Yeah. Do you do any coaching at all? I do a lot of coaching. So I'm teaching a workshop here tomorrow evening on campus for undergraduates Hmm. who are doing summer research. And that one's going to be fun. And it's by the time they've gotten into research, they've started to think more deeply about their own project. They've forgotten what it's like to not understand it. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly asking them to explain what they're doing and more importantly, why it matters. Why should somebody care that they just met at a party or that lives next door to them or that's in line at the grocery store? Why should that person care? And they've gotten so immersed in the details that they've forgotten to take a step back, look at the big picture, and they've almost forgotten how to explain it in non-scientific terms because they've become immersed in this culture of science. So there's a lot of coaching of how to not use jargon and how to make things more accessible. I always yell at my students or not yell because I don't want to do that, but get after them for using the term dumbing down because it's not dumbing down. It's making it accessible. Mm-hmm. I'm not a lawyer. If you start talking to me in lawyer speak, I'm not going to understand what you're talking about. And I don't think I'm dumb. I just don't know all of the lawyer terminology. So it's reminding scientists that we have our own language and a lot of people don't know that language. A lot of what I do, I got from the Allen Alda Center for Science Communication at Stony Brook University. Had an opportunity to go there a few week, few years ago, spend a week. Alan Alda was the keynote the first night. He's still amazing. It was so much fun. Huge, just professional crush moment to mm-hmm. get to hear him speak and then get a chance to talk to him the next day. And there they work with theater professionals right alongside science professionals We did a bunch of improv theater exercises, and I bring a lot of those into my workshops as well. Just really getting scientists to loosen up a little bit and not worry about getting everything perfect and just being human, because that's really what it's all about. It's not about, did everybody get all the information? Yeah. What if they didn't? That's not the point. The point is, did they walk away learning something? And did they walk away thinking, yeah, that was interesting. I'm glad I was there, and I now know a scientist. Yeah, I I have almost the opposite problem where <laughs> as I read and learn about science, I, I'm usually just like, well, can I use this to sound interesting on stage or at a party <laughs> and impress people? And if the answer is no, then I don't need that information. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, but I do, I'm, I'm half kidding and half not. Uh, but uh, I, I do see when, when you're talking about just give me the paper and I'll go to the bar or whatever, because I, I go to conferences here and there from time to time. And I, I'm sorry. I, off, I sometimes often... Uh, sometimes often um not terribly often but sometimes um go and check out lectures here and there i see if i can sneak into a uh class or something once in a while and uh and i do get a kick out of seeing how different people present um present science in different situations one of the things uh, when you said that, give me the paper I'll, and I'll go to the bar. I'm, I'm reminded of what I what I see several times. It's like you can see someone's like uh, you know it's their first time presenting at this conference or whatever, and they've worked really, really, really hard on on their presentation. And they have all of these interesting 
facts and studies and things like that, and they've really gone over and over and edited out and written down exactly what they're going to say and, and you know, really worked so hard on this, and then they get up there and they're just reading off of this paper for an hour straight. It's just like, ah, you're just reading. Like, like right. I can't just turn that into outlines Remember what you remember from the outline, and if you screw up a few times, that's okay. It might lead to some improvised moments or whatever instead, but it's just so much more engaging than having someone just read to you for an hour. And that's another thing I see with... uh, with uh, with I I don't know how how, interested a particular listener is in this stuff, but I I imagine there's a lot of people that give presentations and stuff like that and all sorts of time uh, in all sorts of fields that might benefit from uh, the same kind of uh, tips but I see people's over reliance on on PowerPoint uh, just like whoa look at this PowerPoint it's a visual thing that people can see and it's great when there's like a nifty little graph that really uh, <coughs> that really gets across the point of of how much of a um, variation there was in between whatever studies and uh, you know but it seems like once someone starts their powerpoint they don't feel comfortable like having a blank screen and just talking uh, and just using the powerpoint when they need to when there's that perfect graph that uh, the venn diagram that illustrates exactly what they're trying to say and it is useful and they end up putting powerpoints up that is like the thing that they're like saying like like the like the talking points that that drives me crazy when someone puts up a powerpoint and then reads the powerpoint (laughs) to you right that's that's called a slide you meant what is that it's a slide you meant and I think that's a Gar Reynolds term. He's a graphic, not really graphic designer, but trainer and expert that one of my graduate students introduced me to. And so it's a slide you meant. It's trying to be a slide and a document and succeeding at neither. Yeah, right, right. Succeeding at neither. Right. Um, but, but there are, I mean, definitely the the people that I think give the most engaging presentations are usually, you can tell, they're just, you know, they have their outline, they have some talking points that they're glancing at, they maybe have a couple graphs they're going to show or something, or a funny picture once in a while here or there over the course of an hour, but they're not relying too much on that, they're not relying too much on sticking to exactly saying the exact right word in the right order and and uh, and and just so overly rehearsed. Um, and, and you, you have experience with Toastmaster as well. How did you, when did you get into, I, I sometimes once in a while, I, I think about, uh, checking out Toastmasters. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I'm a public speaker and right. I just want to see, it seems like a different style than what stand up comedy is for it's, sure. It's, it is it a seems a bit style. more formal. It is more formal. I've been a Toastmaster longer than I'm going to admit on air, just because. <laughs> you know, 
what is that? You're, that is you're the, ashamed of your... No, it's not that I'm ashamed of how long I've been a Toastmaster. It's that I'm a woman who's now old enough that I no longer want to admit how old I am. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm not interested. I, I just but go with enough. I've been a Toastmaster over a decade, and we're just going to go with that. All right. I'll, yeah. I'll accept that. All right. Yeah, a little bit of vanity going on here. <laughs> sure, so I'm just going to sure. stick with it. Sure. I want you to be comfortable. Cool. Thanks, man. Um, yeah. All right. Since I'm asking background question, let's get the whole background. How did you get into, because we haven't even talked about what you actually do um, here at the university. Although science talk is my second full time that I don't get paid for sort of a job. So I'm glad we could talk about that. But yeah, let's go for it. What is your your background interest in science? Well, I'm curious what came first, the science communication or um, the neuroscience and, and the and I'm wondering how you got into the field that you're into because we're going to be talking about fish today, I yes. think, and how and how fish hear and how that relates to how we might be able to improve human hearing in the future. Exactly. And that's one of those things that a lot of people walk away from a conversation with me, hopefully that they're glad they had, going, oh, fish can hear. Fish have ears. I never knew that before. And if that's the one thing people remember that's great with me. I don't care if people get all of the details because that right there is one of those aha, I've never seen an ear on a fish. What do you mean they have them kind of moments? But I got into it in a circuitous route. I was interested in marine biology. I wanted to chase sharks as a kid. I really had no idea what I was going to do if I caught one. Hadn't even thought about it. I just simply wanted to chase them. And as I got older, I realized just chasing sharks probably wasn't going to lead to much of anything. So I went to college for marine biology, Florida Tech. And while I was there, taking a class in fish biology, and the professor was talking about how some fish produce sound to communicate with each other. And for whatever it was, I just went, wow, that's awesome. Some fish make noise and can communicate with each other with sound. Couldn't tell you what it was that just sparked my attention or imagination so completely, but it did. So I then went on to, after exploring a little bit more, not getting into graduate school the first time, that's a whole different story, doing a master's in fisheries, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, did my PhD at the University of Maryland studying fish hearing with a guy named Art Popper, Dr. Arthur Popper, who's one of the godfathers of the fish hearing field. Yes, there is such a field. It's (laughs) relatively small, but there are 50, 60, 70, 80 of us maybe now that are really studying that more now from a biomedical perspective. Because if fish could produce sound to talk to each other, well, then they could hear what the other fish were saying. And I've spent the rest of my career studying fish hearing. And I went from being interested in how fish hear and what that can tell us about the fish, which still interests me, and I still do some work there, to a lot more biomedical work about how can we use fish as a model to understand more about our own hearing how we lose our hearing, and how we can develop drug to prevent it. Hmm. Pardon the quick break, listeners, as I give you a little update about my Quip electric toothbrush, because I know so many of you, you've been wondering, Shane, we heard about your Quip electric toothbrush. That's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, but how's it been going? Any updates? Yes, in fact, I just recently got my first replacement head. Oh my God goodness how convenient guys i can't remember who i have booked as a guest for this podcast 
next week, let alone the myriad of other things that I need to schedule in my life. What do you think the chances are that I have noted in my calendar time to replace your toothbrush head? No, this is what happens with my old electric toothbrushes. Sometimes I'm at the grocery store, an idea pops into my head. Hey, maybe you ought to replace that grimy, old, worn-down, bristled brush. And I go and I go, hey, that seems like maybe the toothbrush head that I have, and I pick up a few of these expensive replacement brushes, and I go and I get home, and I realize I just spent over $30 on some replacement toothbrush heads that don't even fit my toothbrush, and now I got to go back to the grocery store with this opened thing of toothbrush heads that is for the wrong brush. Do you think I actually go back and get my money back? unlikely. I've done that multiple times in my life. You might be a better person than me. Maybe you're more on top of life than I am, but I've done that multiple times in my life. No more with the Quip electric toothbrush. It's sent to your door. You get it at the time that you're supposed to replace your head. It shows up in the mail. $5, that includes shipping and handling. And you just throw it on the old brush. Nothing else to think about. And As a reminder, when you replace that brush, because of Quip's unique design, you don't have to see that grimy, disgusting bacteria that every other electric toothbrush seems to have, that space between where the head snaps into the body. Quip doesn't have that. It's a nice, sleek design. Go online to Quip.com to get Quip, and you can take a peek for yourself you'll see exactly what i'm talking about anyone that's ever used an electric toothbrush is knowing exactly what i'm talking about right now it's been a life changer for me quip starts at just 25 dollars, and if you go to getquip.com slash here we are right now you'll get your first refill pack free with a quip electric toothbrush that's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash here we are spelled g-e-t-q-u-i-p dot com slash here we are so when you're talking about fish communicating is this the same as is like a whale making their call and going out is it the same basic principle or yes and no it's the same in that it's sound being produced underwater by one animal and heard underwater by other animals of that same species. So from that standpoint, similar to whales, different in a lot of ways in that whale song is fairly complex. And there's even some evidence that some species of whales like orcas, which are actually the largest dolphins, that they can probably learn their song because each of the different pods has a slightly different dialect. They're each talking a little bit different. It's like if you take a New Yorker and you put them in the south, they're going to sound a little bit off. Mm. It's the same with some of these different pods of orcas. Fish, on the other hand, don't learn their communication. They don't learn what they're going to say. It's all innate behavior. Mm. And most of the sounds are pretty simple. So one of the species that I study, the plain fin midshipman fish, the males go, hmm, and that's their courtship call to attract females. But it's just a simple hum. There's not a lot of additional complexity to it, and they don't know a lot of different notes. It's not like a songbird where they're singing something really complex, but the essence of this fish is going to make sound, these other fish are going to hear it, and they might do something based on what they're hearing, that's really the purpose of acoustic communication. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I just asked because the whale songs get all the publicity, so everyone everyone's heard about that. Right, they do. And, you know, fish song just isn't a sexy, I guess. Well, it comes well in second so, place. some of the ladies must like it, right? Is the fish it, ladies. Right. Are there different characteristics that the fish ladies are looking in the in the male hum? We actually haven't done a lot of those studies yet. There must be. So if you think just from an evolutionary purpose, mm. these fish that I'm talking about, these plain fin midshipman fish, they breed at night, and the males are in this rocky intertidal zone, and they go under rocks and burrow out little nests, and then they hum to attract females. And the females are coming in from further out in the water. And they're clearly listening for the sound of a particular male to mate with. What exactly they're choosing, we're not entirely sure. But bigger males can often call for a longer period of time, or at least a more fit, a healthier male, because it takes a lot of energy to hum for a long period of time. I mean, it's not like us. It's not like the fish is drawing breath because they're not using the same mechanism. The fish has a swim bladder, basically a little balloon in the center of it with muscles on it. And that swim bladder also helps the fish to go up or down in the water by making it more or less buoyant. But these midshipman fish and some other species of fish, they have muscles on the sides of the swim bladder that contract. And it vibrates this balloon, and that's what makes the humming noise. Hmm. But you can imagine then contracting your muscles a whole bunch of time over a long period of time, that takes a lot of energy. So the males that can do that longer probably are the healthier, more fit males. So if I was a female midshipman fish, which I'm not, but let's say I was, I'd probably like the males that could hum for a longer period of time because he's probably a lot healthier, so he's probably going to father better kids. Hmm. And how do you, uh, so how do fish hear? So fish have ears. This uh-huh. is this is the big thing we're all going to learn today. <laughs> exactly. Fish have ears. And, and uh, what, what, so they're obviously internal. Yeah. Um, what is a, how does a fish ear uh, work that's different than other uh, ears that we're used to? We're, we're all familiar with mammal ears, uh, which are these very obvious things. Uh, it, it, does a fish ear work the exact same internally or? Similarly, right. So we're all familiar with mammalian outer ears, which are the things that stick out of our heads. But we don't see our own inner ears mm-hmm. any more than we see the inner ear of a fish. It's just the fish doesn't have an ear that starts on the outside. So we don't think about what's going on the inside. So Not in- terribly aerodynamic to have a... Uh- no. To have ears on the outside. No, that neither. No. Well, and fish don't need glasses. So they don't need ears to prop up the, their glasses. <laughs> right. But if you think about it, so the way that sound works in air, sound moves through the air, and uh-huh. then it hits, so it's a pressure wave. It hits the eardrum, vibrates the eardrum, which vibrates the little bones in the middle ear, which then moves fluid through our inner ears. And our, our hearing organ is called the cochlea. And so it's fluid moving inside our cochlea that stimulates our hearing. And what that does is that stimulates these little cells called hair cells. And they're called that because they have little hair-like things that stick out the top. They're not anything like the hairs on our head, but they look a bit like a hair cell or like these hairs on our head. And so that's where they got their name. And in a fish, they don't have an outer ear that sticks out. They don't have a middle ear. They don't have an eardrum. 
because the sound just travels right through the fish. The fish is what we call acoustically transparent. So in us, the sound's moving in air, and then it eventually needs to get translated into movement and fluid, because that's what's in our inner ear. In the fish, the whole thing is basically fluid. So the sound just moves through the fish and hits the inner ear. The inner ears sit right under the brain, right next to each other. And they have hair cells in their ears, just like we do in ours. And those are stimulated by the fluid movement in their ears, just like they are in ours. There are definitely some differences in the way that they work. So in the fish ear, you have a basically, we call it an epithelium, but basically it's a a layer of hair cells and the little hairs stick out the top. And then on top of that, there's what's called an otolith or an ear stone. And that is a lot like a bone. It's made of calcium carbonate, just like our bones are. And they look like little white stones. And what happens then when the fish moves in the water, so there's vibration, there's movement in the water that we would call sound. The fish is moving back and forth imperceptibly. We don't actually see this in the sound field. This otolith, this ear stone is much more dense. And so it lags behind. So you have fish moving which means all the cells are moving, you have otolith moving at a different rate. And what that does is then the otolith is then stimulating these little hairs that stick out the top of the cells to bend. And that allows for ions to flow into the cell. And then the cell acts a lot like a nerve cell does. So the little hairs bend, that opens channels, ions flow into the cell, and that then sends an electrical signal from that cell to the brain saying, hey, we heard something. So just for clarification, yeah. now now talking about the human right. ear hair that also uh, is a part of our hearing, mm-hmm. um, I guess I never realized that hair, our ear hair, it, are you talking about the ear hair that like when you uh, when you get older, it starts popping no, out of your ear? No, not at talking? all. Okay. Completely different. <laughs> I'm talking that about- stuff doesn't seem to help. Here. No, that doesn't help at all. That just makes you look funny as you get older. <laughs> right, right. No. Right. So there's inner ear hair. That- they're called hair cells. Yeah, they're not hairs at all. Okay, okay. Yeah, they're, I see. Yeah, they're more like nerve cells, but they're just, they're small. They don't actually have like a long- axon a long bit of nerve that goes on but they're part of our nervous system Hmm. and so they're little cells in our ears but they have little what look like hair like things that stick out the top that Uh, move in response to sound waves and that's why they're called hair cells not because there's hair coming out exactly okay it's because they have little hair like things that stick out the top that somebody thought looked like hairs Uh. so they called them hair cells just to confuse Nothing to do me. with the ears that are sticking. Right. You're not the first one to be confused by <laughs> okay, that. Right? Okay. Yeah, no. Um, you can shave off your ear hairs and you're not going to change your hair. Okay. I was you're like, yeah. I was like, but when my girlfriend plucks out my ear hairs for me, which is a painful process, by the way, am I doing all of that just to go deaf? So it's it's a no. relief that, uh, that That's strictly I can cosmetic. keep doing that. Yes. All right. Yeah, please do. <laughs> please do. <laughs> okay. Um, so... Terrific. And, and now that we got that confusion out of the way. Cool. Um, all right. So uh, you got these um, these little little hair cells in fish uh, in fish that um, uh, that are this major player in how it hears and they uh, so they regenerate in, in fish. Right. But not in humans. Is that is that my understanding? And and so the idea is, is if you could maybe get them to regenerate in humans as well, figure out some way of, I, I don't know. Can you explain? Yeah, absolutely. 
And that's one of the million dollar, or really probably billion dollar questions, if you're thinking well, let's from hash an it industry out. perspective. Uh, All right. We, we, have, we have up to 30 minutes to figure this out and make a billion dollars. So go. Fantastic. <laughs> no <laughs> pressure. Full, yeah, no pressure. And if only it were really that easy to get the grant funding to get towards that billion dollars. Right. So we know that in not just fish, but in frogs, in reptiles, in birds, they can all regenerate their hearing. So if their hair cells are damaged, and because it's usually the hair cells that are damaged in hearing loss in us as well, whether it's from loud noise or there are certain drugs that can cause hearing loss or certain genetic conditions, it's usually the hair cells that are damaged. What drugs can cause hearing? I'm asking for the listeners, not mm-hmm. myself. What what drugs can cause hearing loss? I've never heard of Not that. recreational drugs. Oh, so okay. I'm actually talking more like, about medications. So some antibiotics, some chemotherapy drugs. There are a couple of reports in terms of recreational drugs of ecstasy causing hearing loss. What? Okay. There isn't much on anything else. So mm. there, there's the occasional, what they call a case report. So a doctor noted a patient having this of heroin causing hearing loss. But that's usually from a patient that went on a binge of so many different drugs that they don't even really know what happened. And mm. that patient's in no condition to tell them. Right. But in terms of when I say drugs, I really meant medications mm-hmm. in this case. Okay. Um. So, uh, so you have fish... Uh, reptiles and what was the birds? Birds, did you say frogs? Every so we're talking vertebrates, things with a backbone, everything but mammals. Okay, and we don't know about platypus because platypus represent this really cool evolutionary stage. In... I don't believe in platypus. You don't believe in way. platypus? No, I, oh, I was so in sad. I was in Australia and I went to uh, a stream <laughs> that was or some river that was supposed to be full of platypus, and I spent like hours looking for platypus. Eventually gave up. So then I went to an aquarium in <laughs> in Sydney, and I went to the platypus exhibit, uh, and and it, there was <laughs> I could not find the platypus to save my life. And so then my fun joke is that I I now believe uh, that platypus are just conspiracy. <laughs> you probably just started a whole new conspiracy theory that'll go viral right there. Yeah, with your the stuff that you condition. see on the animal planet and stuff, that's just uh, CGI. Yeah, right. Um, so anyway, I, I genuinely, I do want to hear what is special about platypus. Okay, no, that's fine. Platypi? Platypi? Platypus? Not sure. Okay. But I don't study platypus, say... so we're just going to go with platypus, because okay. that much I can do. Sure. So first of all, just about platypus, the genome is as weird as the animal itself. They sequenced the platypus genome years ago now. There's a paper in Science. And when you read it, you go, oh, yeah, they have genes for fur. They have genes for producing milk. They are mammals. They have genes for producing that duck bill. They have genes for laying eggs. They have genes for venom. Their genome is the craziest hodgepodge of stuff I've ever seen, just like the actual animal. Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, I understand your kind of trepidation about platypus. (laughs) They're a little weird. But they also occupy this really cool evolutionary place in that them and echidna are the only known or the only currently living egg-laying mammals Mm -hmm. and so they represent this really weird evolutionary kind of offshoot we don't know if they can regenerate their hearing or not and even if you can find a platypus my understanding is impossible right which you can't apparently or at least you can't somebody can i can't right but 
my understanding is they're threatened or endangered, so you can't really do studies on mm. their hearing regeneration anyway. But all of the mammals that we have looked at can't regenerate their hearing. Fish, frogs, other non-mammals that are vertebrates can regenerate their hearing. So first, that raises the question of what happened. Yeah, why... Why Why did that we? get selected out over time? Right, exactly. And that's itself one of the million dollar, multi million dollar questions. So we're just big grown up fish. You kind of. We sprouted some arms and legs and stuff. Yeah. We don't. Right. You, you wouldn't know from looking at a picture, but <laughs> you go back far enough. Yeah, exactly. And so what happened? And there are some hypotheses that the way our cochlea, our hearing organ, is structured, that the cells are so different that they can't be induced to regenerate. So the way regeneration works in fish and most of these other vertebrates that people have looked at is when the hair cells are damaged from loud noise, like I said, certain medications, or from, in some cases, aging, the the hair cell dies. But then the surrounding cells, they're called supporting cells because they are supporting the hair cell. They're probably doing a lot more than that, but that's where they get their name. They divide. So they replicate and some of the newly made cells then become hair cells. So you get this ongoing cell division in the ear. And in the case of fish ears, there's always ongoing cell division. So in a fish ear, there are always some hair cells that are dying that have probably been around for a while and they're always making new ones. In the ear of a bird... Normally in a healthy adult bird, their hair cells aren't dying and they're not continuously making new ones. But if their hair cells are damaged, their supporting cells will divide and some of those will turn into hair cells. So you'll get new hair cells. In mammals, that doesn't happen. And so some of the main thinking is that the supporting cells in the mammalian cochlea and the mammalian hearing organ are so specialized. There are more types of supporting cells. They seem to have a lot more structural properties. They're maybe doing different things than the supporting cells in the ears of these other vertebrates like fish and birds. So maybe those supporting cells just can't divide anymore. And there's, I think, a lot of evidence to back that up. Now, that said, I think that there are ways that we could play some genetic tricks mm -hmm. to get them to divide. And there are plenty of labs that are studying this. It's not just, not just my lab that, that are doing these studies. And not just genetic tricks to get these mammalian cells to divide, but then to once they divide, get those new cells to become hair cells and then get them to stick around. Hmm. Because it's not just that they have to make new cells, that the, then those new cells have to stay healthy. And those new cells have to then connect up to the brain properly. So there are a lot of steps that have to occur for hearing regeneration to actually take place. Just producing more cells isn't enough, but that's a good first step. And it's something that fish in particular do really well. So we're interested some in the genetics of what genes are important for fish to produce new hair cells and mm. regenerate their hearing. And not just what genes, but what portions of the proteins those genes code for. So you could have a whole gene, but let's say that it part of it is changed. So part of that function, the protein's function is changed from, say, fish to mammals. What are those changes? And can we better understand how those changes could affect hearing regeneration? Thinking long-term gene therapy potentially for humans or something like that. But we're, I think, still decades away from that. Hmm. So we're, we're not going to make that billion dollars right away. Oh, come on. Sorry, man. Uh, You're going to have to keep doing comedy. Ah, man. <laughs> um, I So if, when you talk about gene therapy, would that be 
potentially like trying to find some dormant genes in us that are that we can then flip on that that changes this role and starts this regeneration process or is this like a stem cell thing to activate damaged to help out damaged genes what what sort of process do you think that will look like in the future there are researchers that are trying to do both of those and so there are definitely researchers so i'm really on point right now. yeah you are yeah no there, there are researchers around the country that are around the world that are looking at what genes do you need to flip on Mm-hmm. So what genes are normally turned off in the mammalian ear that if we flip them on can lead to regeneration? There are also probably some genes that are on in the mammalian ear that are putting the brakes on the system. Mm. So, like an inhibitor. Yeah. Okay. So what genes do we also need to turn off hmm. to remove the brakes? Now, that's tricky because you don't want to remove the brakes for too long or Just you get too many cells dividing. with hair cells well, everywhere. Well, you get too many cells dividing, that's called a tumor. Right, right, right. So it's a finely balanced process. So how do we initiate regeneration but not get it to go so far that you get too many cells? Right. So first of all, just an explosion of hair cells because that would be an interesting set of fireworks in itself. Mm -hmm. But how do we keep these cells from being overproduced and creating a tumor? And then there are some groups that are trying stem cell therapy as well and trying to introduce, not in humans yet, but in things like guinea pigs and trying to introduce stem cells into the ear and get them to become hair cells and connect up in the brain to the right way. And there have been some limited successes there. I mean, all of these approaches have met with some success in mice and rats and guinea pigs and these kind of small animal models, but we're definitely not ready to try this in us yet. Boy, this seems like a lot more than a billion dollar industry. <laughs> if you figure out how to make people hear again or, or improve hearing, it seems, it seems, it seems like I, I think there's people that have made billions of dollars off of less vital things than hearing. Uh, this, this could be some really incredible work. I and, think so. Actually, more of my lab, to be honest, is focused on preventing hearing loss really okay. than regenerating it. We do some work in hearing regeneration, but while I think that's still probably a 20 or 30 year target clinically, which I'm really excited about. I mean, I'm married to a drummer and have been to a lot of loud shows myself and I'm very excited about the prospects of potential hearing regeneration in my own lifetime so that my husband, while he could pretend to ignore me, in 20 or 30 years, you know, he could at least still be able to hear me. And then it's his choice whether or not he chooses to acknowledge. And that's a whole different deal. Right, right. But where my lab is really focused a lot is in the hearing loss prevention. So how are things like noise or some of these medications damaging hair cells? And then how can we intervene with, say, a drug that a patient taking a damaging chemotherapy agent or a damaging antibiotic, we could give them another drug at the same time where the antibiotic could still do its job, or the chemotherapy agent could still do its job, but it wouldn't damage their hearing. Hmm. Or how can we understand how noise is damaging the ear? So say a soldier in the field where there's a very high prevalence of hearing loss in our military veterans could be could take something after exposure to intense gunfire, assuming that they're okay otherwise, mm-hmm. of course, because there are more critical issues there, but assuming that they're okay. Otherwise, how could they take something in the field that would then prevent the hearing loss from being around that explosion or around that gunfire? Mm. 
So, so what kind of studies are you doing? Are you just like blasting an air horn into the fish tank? Are you just shooting these things full of chemo? What, what, how do you, uh, how do you test this stuff? Kind of like that, but what we use mostly for these studies are baby zebrafish, zebrafish larvae. So an adult zebrafish is only three or four inches long. The larvae are the size of an eyelash. So imagine a dish full of swimming eyelashes. Mm-hmm. That's what Done. we do. Right. I'm picturing it right now. All right. Now, also remember that I wanted to chase sharks when I grew up, and I'm now studying swimming eyelashes. <laughs> so the scale is not really what I intended. But sure. I've become really impressed with what we can do with these little zebrafish. And they have ears, like these other fish ears that we talked about, but they also have what's called a lateral line. And this is clusters of hair cells on the outside of the body. So... If you look at a salmon fillet in the store, there's a line running down the middle of that fillet. And if you look at the skin side and you were to stick your salmon fillet under a microscope before you grill it up, there are little clusters of hair cells on the outside of most fish. And they use those to detect vibration in the water that are near the fish. So things like stream flow or something that might be trying to eat them that's swimming along or something they might want to eat. So detecting predators or prey. And those hair cells in that lateral line system are just like the hair cells in the fish's ear. And they're also very similar to the hair cells in our ear. Hmm. So we have these little swimming eyelashes, these little larval zebrafish. They have hair cells on the outside of the body. We can put them into little dishes and we can add different drugs. So we can add, say, a chemotherapy drug or an antibiotic. The fish swims around in it. The hair cells are on the outside. They take up the drug. And then we can add test drugs to see if we can then block that damage. Hmm. We've also created, in collaboration with engineers at University of Illinois Chicago, we have a noise damage device, which damages the lateral line of these larval zebrafish. And we're some of the first to do this. It's a big metal canister. It basically looks like a turkey fryer. And it has speakers on the bottom. And then there's a little plate and the fish sit in this little plastic dish basically at the top. And we fill the thing with water and we play sound from these speakers at the bottom. Metallica or? Uh, no, it's nothing nearly that exciting. <laughs> it's just a single frequency. Okay. Although there's all kinds of complex stuff. The sound's bouncing around inside this turkey fryer thing. So it doesn't quite sound like a single hum, but it's definitely not Metallica. Okay. We could try that. <laughs> It'd have to be pretty low frequency, but that might work. Well, I mean, I, it I'd, se- I'd it rather play like a hip hop. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that uh, I, I think it's an easier. Way. Speaking of science communication, this is <laughs> this is how you get those uh, the you know the headline in the New York Times or whatever scientists figure out how to prevent Metallica from damaging ear <laughs> hearing I, or something less ridiculous than that, perhaps. We're just workshopping. Here. Oh, no, I, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Actually, in my lab, not so much anymore, but we went through a really fun EDM, electronic dance music phase. Because sure. I had a, a lab member who's a really good EDM producer and another who was DJing locally. What, what's your what's your guy playing, by the way? What, what kind of music is... The, the drummer? Oh, your, my husband? Your husband, yeah. Yeah. So these days, the current band is called Abby and the Normals and yeah, Young Frankenstein reference mm-hmm. that I actually don't understand, but I have been Me told either. about. All right, good. But, but I said, mm-hmm. Uh-huh, right. Okay, and right. I, I have the same response, right? <laughs> okay, Young Frankenstein. 
And they do some original stuff. It's kind of pop with a little bit of funk influence. They do some covers. They've been covering a song by Garbage. They've been covering a Maroon 5 song. They've been covering a Tom Petty song. They've been covering some other things that are more obscure that I know the music when I hear it, but I couldn't tell you who the artist is right now. Mm. It's just they practice in our basement, so I hear practice a lot of times. They're actually really good. I'm not just saying that because it's my husband. He's been in bands in the past that... I wasn't a big fan of, and I can say that on the air, and that's fine. I really like this one. Cool. And it's also fun because I'm sitting in my home office sometimes on the weekends writing a grant or working on a research paper with my earplugs in because there's a band practicing literally next door, but I get really good live music then when I'm working at home, and most people don't get to say that. (laughs) That's fun. It is. Um, So uh, you might be able to figure out ways of preventing that so so back to the uh the sound the music that you're playing in there that's damaging is there something because i can see putting in some other chemical that offsets whatever damage from a chemo drug or something Mm -hmm. like that but but how do you how do you prevent the damage of a physical like a because it isn't isn't like this loud sound or or music or whatever it might be is it is it like the physical act of like the uh, too intensive vibrations? Is is that what's killing the the hair cells not, affecting our ear? Not exactly. Okay. So if it's a really loud sound, let's say you're next to a firecracker when it goes off, which you shouldn't be anyway, or you're next to an airplane or something else that's that loud or in seattle seahawks stadium back when they were competing with the kansas city chiefs fans to see who had the loudest fan base because that got as loud as being right next to a jet airplane at takeoff those are definitely physical damage and there i think that's a lot harder to prevent but the damage that we're doing to our hearing from say turning up our mp3 player too loud or standing too close to a speaker at a concert which i'll admit i'm guilty of doing too that's actually not as much physical damage as it is biochemical damage. It's changing the way that molecules are communicating with each other. Molecules are interacting inside the cell. Hmm. And if we can disrupt the way those molecules are interacting to cause damage, we actually can prevent those cells from dying. Hmm. Uh, so what... It- I guess I don't... I still don't quite understand what the process is. Is it? Is it some sort of... Uh- is that like a regulatory system where it's this? It's now perceiving too intense of a sound, and it's trying to um, adjust your hearing down to make it less. Uh, uh, I, I don't know, uh, less receptive to to tones. Uh, what I don't, I still don't quite understand why loud music causes hearing loss. Then right, okay, so part. For a lot of different reasons. And we're actually still trying to figure out all of what's going on in these cells. But part of it is that loud music, loud noise, creates what are called reactive oxygen species. So we hear about antioxidants at the time, right? And how antioxidants are healthy for all of your cells. And if we were to just take antioxidants, we're all going to be healthy and live forever, which is a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But there is some truth to that in that what we call reactive oxygen species or free radicals are damaging to cells. These are produced by when the cell is overstimulated and the little energy factories, the mitochondria in the cell are working really hard and they're doing way too much. And they can produce these damaging reactive oxygen species that can then go on to 
damage the rest of the cell, damage the cell's machinery. And antioxidants can help prevent that. And so there has been a lot of research looking at if giving somebody antioxidants can help prevent hearing loss from loud noise. And in humans, those studies have been somewhat mixed, but I think that they're really promising. And I think we just haven't really arrived at the right antioxidant cocktail for somebody to take in order to prevent that damage. And there's other things going on inside these cells too. Some of it is regulatory mechanisms. Cells actually have to work to stay alive. If you were to just stick a cell in a dish and not give it the right soup it needs, it's going to die. And so it's maybe noise is also altering the cell's natural survival mechanisms. And so if we can then give the cell a little extra boost of its own survival cocktail, that could also help the cell survive. Hmm. Hmm. So in the future, you might take an antioxidant before you go to... Uh out to live music you might now i'll be honest here the best way to deal with this is really just to wear earplugs okay and i always carry earplugs in my purse these days because i go out for a lot of music you never know when a concert might break out yeah and so i get that's kind of a nerdy thing to do but it really is the best way to prevent hearing loss that said i think antioxidants or some other drugs definitely have a lot of potential Hmm. but i wouldn't i would say to your listeners that doesn't mean just go take a vitamin pill and stand next to the speaker and, and you're going to be fine. Right. No, it doesn't work that way. I think I'll be okay. I, I I had about five years of factory work, which I think... That, I <laughs> you're think screwed did anyway, a, then. Yeah, I think that did a number on, mm-hmm. on my hearing. But in terms of music, I'm just not a fan of super loud music. Like if I even go to a concert or whatever, I prefer to... Like I was at fish last weekend. I was going to say, how much damage did you do to your hearing at fish last weekend? It didn't seem that loud to me. I mean, we were not like right in front of the stage or anything like that. And so I, I, it didn't seem that, that loud to me. I, it seems louder. Sometimes I'm at, what drives me crazy is when I'm in a bar and they're playing their jukebox at, at such an intense volume that you can't talk or anything. I'm like, what is why is it uh, anyway? I, I so I I stay away from loud music um, in in general, but but yeah, don't take antioxidants to, to prevent hearing loss. To, uh, is what we're trying to convey. To right, the that yeah, they might work someday, Maybe but for now, wear your earplugs. And I will say that what you're saying is probably oh, it didn't seem that loud. It's probably a lot louder than you think. Hmm. I have some colleagues right now, especially one Rona Herzano at University of Maryland in Baltimore, who's looking a lot at music or music really in exercise classes. And actually a colleague here, Tina Penman at the VA is doing some similar things. And what they're finding is that the music in a lot of exercise classes at fitness clubs is loud enough to probably cause some damage over the course of an hour long class. (laughs) Really? Yes. So you're there to get healthy, right? And you're working your muscles, you're working your heart, you're getting this cardiovascular exercise, and you could well be damaging your hearing at the same time because of the sound intensity in mm. a lot of these fitness clubs. So when we tend to think, oh, it's not that loud, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not damaging. Hmm. And so one of the things that I have on my phone and my husband has, now my husband's also an audio geek, so he just likes to play with these, is a, a decibel meter app on your phone that these days phones are good enough, have good enough microphones that you can download these free decibel meter apps and just check the sound where you're standing at a concert 
And if it's peaking at 95, 100 dB, you're doing some damage. Mm, that is interesting and useful. I, uh, that is, uh, I'm going to start doing Fantastic. that. Fantastic. And then you can play games with your friends and stand in different points and see what the sound is huh. like. All right. There's, that's some very practical advice that anyone can use. We did it. Uh, we didn't make a billion dollars yet. No. But we maybe helped enough people that are going to watch their decibel levels to keep their hearing intact for long enough until we have the billion dollar uh, hearing regeneration um, pra- practice uh, system there in we place. Go. Um, so, all right. Well, I have a couple things before we wrap up. Uh, I have my guests each week name a nonprofit of their choice or a charity of their choice. I think I have an idea of what yours is. Yeah, I tossed around a few different ideas, thought about doing something that was much more of global impact, and then decided what the heck, and I'm going to name Science Talk, which is the science communication nonprofit that I've helped found, because I think that communicating science and why it matters is important and want to mm-hmm. get the word out. Um, I do have uh, I have a, a decent number of listeners uh, in the area, and I'm in the area. I'm interested in in learning more and participating in science talk. What is how does the how does the general public get involved? What are they? Um, you mentioned there's conferences. Are these just for? scientists just for researchers to learn more about how to communicate to the public or are these actual public events where people are hearing um science talks and communication what what uh, uh for a listener what is available for them how can they be involved and how can they um uh, check out some some local stuff in this portland area yeah, so Science Talk, our big initiative is our annual conference, and the next one is April 4th and 5th at the Tiffany Center in Portland. And there, the focus really is on how do scientists better communicate, but it's not just for scientists. We have a lot of science communication professionals, journalists, university and government science communication officers. We've had people with theater backgrounds and all that come and also do sessions as well. So that actually might be something fun would be to teach some of us scientists how to do some comedy that we could work into some of our science presentations, which would be way more fun. We had a guy earlier this year, this guy Kyle from an organization called Science Riot that gave a talk at Science Talk, and their organization teaches scientists to do stand-up, and then they do these science-themed stand-up shows in a few different cities around the U.S. So in terms of people being interested, just go to sciencetalk.org and... Mm -hmm. You can find more information. We don't have a conference program yet because the conference isn't until April. So we're actually going to be soliciting proposals from people that are interested in putting together a session for the conference on different aspects of science communication. And that'll be coming out soon. In terms of local things, one of my favorites are the Local Science on Tap series. And that's put on by Amanda Thomas of Via Productions, who's also on the Science Talk board. And they get scientists from around the area speaking at a few different venues in Vancouver and Portland. One of my favorites is Larry Sherman. He's at OHSU. If you haven't interviewed him yet, you should. He's fantastic. Oh, great. Always looking for new guests. Yeah. And he's actually doing a another talk coming up soon. He does a number of them. But one of my favorites is on music and the brain and how we perceive music. And he's also a trained musician. I think that's tomorrow night. Now that people are listening to this, they're going to they're, 
it's already going to oh, be in the right. past for them. Oh, Although he fuck. also, he resurrects that talk probably oh, okay. every six months or so. Cool. So people will definitely have another chance to check that out. And last year he spoke the night before Science Talk, did a public talk on music and the brain. And then the next day at the conference, for the scientists in the room, he dissected how he did what he just did to really try to reach non-science audiences in a fun and engaging way. So he demonstrated... And then he gave it a little more of a scientific spin for the scientists to talk about how could we do something similar. So that's also a nice partnership between things for non-scientists and coming back to the conference and how we can teach scientists to communicate. Hmm. You guys should come out to, I have a show at Helium Comedy Club in Portland, August 8th. I'll be doing a bunch of science material in my act. It's a Wednesday night. You should tell your science talk people to come. I think I will. The thing is, there's also a Science on Tap talk that night by Dr. Cynthia Cooper from WSU Vancouver. Uh, well, so maybe. I might just have Shoot. to like science hop that night. <laughs> um, all right. Well, as we as we wrap up here, is there anything anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to mention, or any um, any little closing things that we didn't? get a chance to did we do we have any open loops up there i think we covered just about everything i think we covered a lot of it i mean there's always more that yeah. i could go on about this is what i think about every day but i think the big takeaways are fish are cool fish have ears we can use them to help better understand how we lose our hearing and how we can regenerate it and wear earplugs when you go to your next concert because we can't fix that yet and a decibel app yes and bring your decibel app Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Allie, for joining me. Thanks a lot, Shane. This was fun. And thank you, listeners, for bringing such wonderful, curious people. I'll talk with you next week. Next week on the program, I'll be talking with Anna Holub, who I met at the Los Angeles Psychedelic Science Symposium Conference. This is back in July. We met to talk about her book, Forgive and Be Free, a step-by-step guide to release healing and higher consciousness. Great conversation. Looking forward to you guys listening next week. Also, thank you for the support on Patreon.com slash Shane Moss. If you want to see one of the many things that your money has gone towards from Patreon, I just took a picture of some new equipment that I got. And I'm going to post it on the Patreon feed. And you can see I got like sort of a soundboard, sound insulation type of a thing. It's like a, it's almost like a portable audio studio. It's, it's looks super fancy and impressive. And that's a big thing too. I, I go and get these guests and then I have all this awesome professional looking equipment and go the extra mile. Uh, with it and then you know that just makes them feel like what they're doing is that much more important and it makes them put in a little extra effort into the conversation and gets them excited about it and makes it easier to get suggestions and referrals for other guests and and on top of improving the the sound quality it's um it's uh, audio man whoo hard to get audio just right you don't really notice when it's when it's really great audio but when it's bad audio when there's some background noise and everything else that's that's the stuff that you really pick up on 
um, if not consciously, subconsciously, and it just really affects your perception of what you're listening to. And so this is makes all the difference in the world. I'm recording on it. I'm recording the outro on it right now. Maybe you can notice quality difference. Uh, maybe not. But sometimes I'm in worst sound quality uh, situations, and and they're really going to help for that. It's going to be a little bit more luggage to carry around with me, but I think it will be worth it. And uh, so it's nice that I'm able to invest more in the podcast, and that that makes my. My audio editor, Jimmy Fro of the Indie Music Podcast, Jimmy Fro's podcast, makes his job easier, which is, allows us more time to pull out highlights, to put on uh, other podcasts on the Starburns Industry Podcast Network that will get us more listeners. And it's all just kind of this snowball effect of wonderfulness that all comes from you just giving a little bit toward the Patreon, and, and that's also paying for travel expenses and everything else is what I'm using that for. Man, I had uh, I had a, a rough period uh, toward the beginning of the year as well and, and uh, the end of last year, and, and um, just had, uh, I'd invested everything I had into, into this and and it was kind of slower to pay off, and some of those things really are paying off now. But I'm, I'm sure I have many listeners that are uh, that are self-employed, and, um, and and many of you out there that aren't self-employed know you got to make a decision and investing into furthering education or uh, or even getting a new car or a new house or what have you, and you know investing in anything is it can be a, a risky bit of business. And uh, and finally, things have started stabilizing a little bit in my life uh, financially, uh, mostly thanks to monetizing uh, the podcast and getting support from you guys, the listeners on Patreon. And uh, and I am uh, I'm not ashamed to say it was much needed and much appreciated, and has just really. Uh, created uh, a lot less stress in my life and and I've been a lot more creative and optimistic and productive since then so uh, I just got to say thank you guys so much for all the support for spreading the word and everything else that you do hopefully you'll be able to listen to many many more episodes of the here we are podcast in the future those of you that listen all the way to the end you are my favorites (laughs) 